Hi, I'm Sam Simon, and I'm the grandpa, and I always think deep. Hi, I'm Emily Simon. I'm the granddaughter, and I'm always wondering, in every conversation we have, why does grandpa always think deep? Good morning, Grandpa. Good morning, Emily. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, very enthusiastic. Good morning today. Yeah. I feel like the last few weeks, just so many sort of good things have been happening. A lot of opportunities are popping up. I'm writing my new play. And oh, that's exciting. So I think yesterday I was like interviewed twice. Wow. So it's, it was all good. And then you challenged me. What are we talking about today? So I attended a guest lecture at UD with Dr. Alice Dreger, and it was very interesting. She talked about like having a civil discourse on college campuses and then having like a real productive dialogue and discourse. Her background is that she did, honestly, I don't even remember what it was, something, and then some people didn't like it. So then instead of engaging with her ideas, saying, hey, I don't like this idea because that's Y and Z, and here's why what you said is bad, and here is a better idea. They attacked her personally and they made up things that she didn't said to make her look really bad to try to discredit her. And she's not the only academic that this has happened to. And she mostly attributed it, well, I guess it's two things, sort of. It's not engaging with intellectually with ideas, but attacking someone as a person and even making things up about them to attack their character personally with the discredit instead of actually engaging with people. And then she also attributes it to sort of a feeling of students not wanting to be presented with ideas that might make them uncomfortable. And she seems to think that to counter this, we need to treat the pursuit of knowledge because sometimes you're going to encounter knowledge that's going to make you uncomfortable. We need to treat the pursuit of knowledge as a sacred mission. She talked about how universities came out of monasteries. The reason we wear robes when we graduate is to remember that past. And she's like, oh, I always say like, we should wear the robes all the time to remind ourselves of the sacred mission that it's a pursuit of knowledge and it should be treated as a special thing. Another big thing that she really didn't like was the sort of corporatization of the university and how they have a marketing department. Every school has their color and it's trademarked. And whenever you make things for the school, it has to be that specific color. And like, you have know, to use these school colors. And she said she doesn't really like sort of the corporatization aspect. She also says that a lot of times management makes it academia feel like a corporation. And she thinks that academia is something unique, something special, that it should be treated like it's sacred. She very explicitly used the word, even though she said in another part of her talk, that she's atheist, that the pursuit of knowledge should be a sacred mission. So obviously there's a lot to unpack from this, but the thing that really struck me was the way she used sacred. Because my almost knee-jerk reaction to that was like, oh, well, as a Jewish person, like nothing is sacred the way that religion is sacred. To call the pursuit of knowledge sacred would be almost a form of idol worshiping. I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? Well, it covers a whole lot of things, Emily. So thinking just about the one phrase out of context of higher education is a sacred endeavor and or any kind of education really the pursuit of knowledge like specifically higher education yeah so the question would be i don't mind that by itself i guess it does depend on context and then i'm now thinking maybe the motive for raising it if it were a intellectual exercise so that's why I'm trying to learn a little bit more about her. 
And she was invited by the university or by your... She did, yes, invited by the philosophy department. Philosophy department. Yeah. Well, so I'm having a hard time having the conversation without understanding her a little bit more and what might be generating or what her goal or in her arguments. I say argument, the thesis of her presentation and therefore the context of making this statement. Well, if it helps, the presentation was called Free Speech and Open Inquiry. That was the title. That kind of actually was the thesis of her of her. So she, her speech was that we need to free academic, the academic pursuit as a sacred mission and not let it be almost corrupted. She also talked about some other things that she thinks are getting in the way of this, like the incentives that faculty have to produce more research, the way that faculty aren't involved in a lot of universities in like the administration process and how there aren't any incentives for faculty to do that. That was basically your entire thesis. But let me respond to how, so I, I did a quick Google, actually. Since we have been using ChatGPT, I did that first. And it was very, it's a very neutral statement, but it triggered another thought. Apparently she, among other things, is known as a bioethicist. Yes, she is, actually. And, and said an American historian of medicine, science, and sexuality. She's also a bioethicist, so author and former professor of clinical medical humanities and bioethics at the Feinberg School of Medicine Northwest. So Grandpa has recently had a experience with bioethics in medicine. Mm-hmm. I think what we may have mentioned it, I don't know. I was a featured speaker at a, what was called Grand Round. Yes at the center, and I need to get a bioethics and humanities and something else at Stony Brook College of Medicine in New York, because it's interesting that there is a controversy about what I'm working on. So this is where we're going to go with this is triggering for me or creating in my mind an analogy of the topic that I'm about to dive into or diving into. Interesting, interesting. So apparently, among the ideas that this speaker has is that she's discouraging transgender operations. Now, so that might not, I don't think that is true. Based on what she said, she said that there is misinformation about her out there on the internet. I understand this is, this is from her website. I, I'm not saying that pejoratively because I don't know the bait. So again, we're presuming things. So Maybe her idea about sacredness is let's don't presume things when we hear a word. Interesting. So what I what I'm, not? And I read what I would call a dade biography. The and I don't know yet if it's true, but it sounded more and something I might not be that opposed to. But it is. she's not a big fan of the surgical changing. She's not against. Didn't tell that she's degrading the people who go through it or have it. It sounds like she might prefer, her view might be that it could be a transitory intervening too early, could be wrong, and that people's sense of what it is, and in fact, could argue making some sort of medical argument that making an irrevocable change in something that we know so little about may be wrong. I don't know if that's what she's saying. Oh, well, she's saying in her presentation, she talked about her research and her background. She said she opposes, like, gender change surgery on, like, infants. 
were born because sometimes that happened with infants who display both feminine and masculine in certain situations. So maybe that's what it's referring to. I don't know. Well, and so it appears, just my rough view, that there are a lot of people in the transgender world who see her as an enemy. And I can see just a few things I scan, but she would mean about how she's being demonized. And it happened. So so, so the temples for me in discussing this topic, which yeah. to me all of a sudden, <laughs> it is there are books out there promoting assisted suicide for people diagnosed, people who want it, who have been diagnosed with early stage Alzheimer's. So grandpa has early stage Alzheimer's. Uh-huh. And as I think we probably have talked before, I strongly disagree with assisted suicide or accompanied suicide in these in this context. Yeah. So my work and my play is going to be a counter narrative to that. That even when it gets to late stage, I am a gift, a potential gift, if nothing else, in my autopsy. And if nothing else, then that my life philosophy and my and this can now uh, this can get into this sacred discussion a little bit, is to be a benefit to the world. Mm-hmm. I think and I'm not I don't want to be labeled a fan or an enemy of her what she's doing, how she's doing it. I love that she's a bioethicist because a bioethicist program featured me out that for some <laughs> A little bit of bias, but <laughs> So it's an interesting context. The word sacred is also something to focus on. I wonder whether some of our conversation gives too much credit to our task. I think that taking that word and what her argument might be and what an argument I might support is if it's done in good faith and honest belief on how to make humans and life better for everyone, mm-hmm. that it's fine. It reminds me of what the Talmud in Jewish history has to say about disagreements. What does it have to say? Can you predict where I'm going with this? Do you think about where there are two schools of thought in Jewish history that strongly disagree with each other? Oh, there's so many schools of thought in Jewish history that strongly well, uh, with each other. Among, Two Jews, three opinions. <laughs> but no, but the famous one is Hillel's school, the, I think Shemani. The other guy was always wrong. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but in the argument for the sake of good or God mm-hmm. are both fine. Now, it's an interesting way to think about, because what you're pointing at, and there's a lot of the stuff on the campus. This is a, a raging of sorts. I say raging, but fairly large debate. And I have I to say, can I just say, I don't like it when people use the terminology of raging debates or culture wars because it makes it sound like a college campus is constantly in a state of conflict when it's not. You know, I just I I just live my life and I'm not constantly always arguing and fighting with people. And there's not like you walk around campus and there's conflict. People are yelling at each other everywhere you go. It's like you just walk around and people are just living their lives. People are doing their work and they're going to classes and they're going to clubs and. I don't like the terminology of a culture war because it makes it sound like everywhere you walk on a college campus, you're going to see people yelling at each other. And that's not reality. And I feel like it makes it sound so much more intense and more crazy than the day-to-day reality of living on a college campus is. Certainly, University of Delaware, right? Because that's what you're speaking of. I'm not disagreeing with you. I suspect that that's right. And 
Like so much in society today, there are interest groups. We want to make it seem that way. Right. Yeah, it's a vested interest. You know, I found over my career in public affairs and in the consumer movement where I certainly grew up, you know, and spend a lot of my career in these nonprofit groups, it's a tactic to get attention and money. And mm-hmm. indeed, finding common ground isn't usually things that sell. When I say sell, means when you go to the foundation for a grant, they want to know what did you change as opposed to what kind of great discussion did you sponsor or, you know, you changed too. So, so yes, you're right. So maybe I'll, I'll try to alter like You don't have to. I just want to make a little interjection. Well, no, and... She is, it appears, being demonizing by people who don't agree with her. Yes. And I don't know her well enough to... So, so the three things I've run into today, right? Okay. This reminded me of was getting introduced to this woman, being reminded of my disagreement and challenge with his other... in the idea of accompanying suicide for people who are in, in those... Yeah. Of that. And then... You know, this Jewish idea about how do you have strong and useful debate around yeah. issues productively. I mean, it's it's a great convergence because in some ways we live and experience the real things. Oh, and then there's the, the, the one you didn't want to talk to, but I want to mention it. There is this big... So, so that, well, I won't do it. I'll, I'll say it this way. There are limits to freedom. Oh, Yes. The misuse of information and misuse of, so the the idea that gun control for the public is like Nazis doing genocide is another example of. Wait, how so? Wait, what? Limits on how you make your argument. No, 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 no. Go back to what you said about Michigan. So the Michigan Republican Party issued a press release comparing the effort to get gun control to what the Nazis did in Germany, that it somehow gun control was a contributing to the German Shoah Holocaust. Oh, my God. And apparently the, the picture they used on their press release flyer was of a box of jewelry that had been taken off prisoners before they were burnt you know, in ovens. Yeah. They were showing that. And, of course, that is just the opposite. The only guns that were taken, the guns weren't taken. They were just limited to the, to the people who were going to commit the crimes. So if you give the guns to the, if you want to get into genocide, well, you give the guns to those who want to kill others. And it's not gun control at all. The Jews were, had nothing to do with gun control. It's part of, the, okay. part of that anti-Semitic, oh, why didn't the Jews resist? It wasn't because they didn't have guns, but at any rate. But, but it does remind me of the false narrative. So when speech and argument get to that point, then the need to call it out is important. Yes. And there is almost a limit to civility. This is where it gets complicated. When there are things that are demonstrably, you know, no, I mean, this is, when you're no longer doing your debate for the good purpose, which is the hell out some money argument. Right. For the try to further knowledge and further understanding and further understanding how to live a good life. Is that, is that right? 
Yeah, but it stops being that. Then right. the need to address it in some ways. Now, this is an interesting. What are the? I don't know if we spend the time limiting that because I have read lines, right? Many of us do, but certainly a bioethicist whose views are different than mine. And there is so. How about this is a long way to come back to your question. Okay. When we say intellectual honesty is a sacred pursuit, mm -hmm. it means being willing to listen and consider and debate. And if your arguments and your proofs, so to speak, can't show the depravity in the other side, if it is depraved, then maybe you're wrong. That because so much of, of the argument today and things are around power and control. Yeah. How did your audience react to her? I mean, it wasn't necessarily a raucous crowd, <laughs> but there was a lot to unpack. One of the big things actually that my friend said that I thought was interesting was about like the whole sacred mission thing and how we need to engage in debate that might make us uncomfortable. She was like, it can be difficult to tell. So there's intellectual discomfort, getting ideas you don't like, and then there's like physical danger. And that sometimes it can be hard to almost tell if someone is saying these things, are they going to act upon these terrible things that they're saying? Where is the line between intellectual discomfort and physical danger? How can you know? How can you tell? Which I thought was an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting question because the physical danger also has to be a real, fairly realistic. So when we get into this whole issue of triggering language and demeaning language, that dealing with the other respectfully, even if you disagree, I think a way to put that into language is we need to honor the sacredness of every human being. Yes. We don't have to agree with them. Yeah. Behaving in a way that reasonably puts people in fear of their safety and, and even their dignity is not a proper or an appropriate way to engage in that process. I want to be careful about saying what should be allowed and not allowed or illegal or illegal, simply discussing how to engage in intellectual challenging research and, and debate, I think it is true that you need to treat it as a honorable and sacred process. That means being open and willing to be persuaded as well as to persuade and to learn that maybe I'm wrong. I don't know if she ever... It's really important. I don't know if there was a hint of that in what she was saying. I'm curious. That maybe I am wrong, maybe, but that's not the way to deal with it. Or do you have to say, maybe I'm right? She didn't really talk about it that much, but I will say the concept of civil discourse, which I'm learning a lot about in this class called Citizen Civility and Change that I'm taking. I actually went to the talk because it was like, if I, I have to write a reflection paper on it, but I'll like, get credit for going to it. Like, get points. <laughs> but so that, that's part of this class. So anyways, but civil discourse, the idea of civil discourse is that one, when you go into a civil discourse, you have to... Be willing to, at the very least, try to understand the other side. You can be persuaded by them or you can be not persuaded by them. But at the very least, try to go in with the attention that I'm going to walk away with an understanding of how the other person thinks, even if I might not agree. 
And who knows, maybe they'll listen to their reasoning and be like, huh, maybe I actually do agree. Maybe they'll listen to it and be like, I don't agree, but I understand now where they're coming from. And that's sort of what civil discourse is. All parties involved have to be willing to walk away at least to that understanding of the other person in order for it to count as a civil discourse. Otherwise, it doesn't work and it just devolves into arguing. Yeah. You know, it's really challenging. The more I just saw a, one of those controversial things by that speaker. Now, so there's a behavioral thing. Life has become so much more complicated in your... Really? I was actually going to ask you about that because in something I've noticed is that the word cancel culture has come into existence. But cancel culture, at least in the definition uh, that Dreger shared with us of like someone being like kind of... Basically, what she described, this whole discrediting thing, it's like libel, slander, and defamation. And those are very old words. And so it's almost like, why are we invent, are, is, do we need to invent a new term? Is this a new enough phenomenon that it warrants inventing a new term? Or has this stuff always been around? So that's what I want to ask you, sort of. Yes. It is a new enough traditional, The traditional view of free speech, but it depends on where and how. So it required public dissemination for it to be libelous or defamatory. People yeah. had to hear it and then had to... You had to show that it had a damaging effect on your reputation or on your business. or And below that, it was pretty wide open in public discourse. But a lot of this is coming in the context of schools and in teaching. And libel and slander didn't really work exactly in that area. Didn't get, they came out in more public forums, whether the newspapers or standing in the corner or standing up and speaking in public and saying, John over here raped my daughter. And of course he didn't and never would even knew the daughter. And then that John over there lost his job for defaming him, causing him lower. Now we're trying to shape general conversations to reframe views and understandings of concepts and people. And it's a, I don't know if we talk, I don't remember that coming up in school or in, so I mean, it takes me to, you know, the don't say, well, the not wanting to teach certain parts of the slavery because we didn't do it, right? I didn't do it. I'm a little lost. I'm not sure how that relates. Well, it's restricting speech and how you're taught. So, this conversation in part is about what can be said in school so and how teachers and how language is used right then mm -hmm. and she sort of she has views about and she's a controversial person it turns out which is interesting she acknowledged that she was like yes yeah, so a lot of people don't like me and i'm controversial and she went up she said some things that some people thought were controversial and i was like well way to practice what you preach <laughs> well i but it goes beyond that so um, my quick, just momentary review of some things about her. She's a medical professional and went to her child's sex ed class. Set oh, yeah, she live-tweeted it. She did say that that was one of the things she knows. Well, and she sent it back and she live-tweeted it and criticized. Her criticism sounded right, but the idea of doing it that way is like she's trying to make money for herself and trying to be able to write a book and be a character. And then I would question, does she do what she preaches? Mm -hmm. In other words, was she making learning a sacred pursuit? 
when you sit that. when you sit in your kids' class and live tweet to sex ed and and say and by the way her point of view seemed to be more progressive than conservative. She was criticizing the teacher of saying that teaching sex ed made kids more promiscuous or something. At any rate, but the fact that she would do that tells me she has a different agenda. Interesting. I think it's very interesting that you point that out because she was actually saying in her presentation, one of the things she said was that she thinks that universities put too much pressure on faculty to produce research that's like on a hot topic or that everyone's going to read. And then said we should just be producing good research. And that might not be on like the super hot topic. And maybe not a ton of people will read it, but it will be good research. But part of me is like, like, what's the point of doing research if no one's even going to read it? And if you write a boring research paper where you get dust your hands on some curriculum or you film a sex ed class of some random student and teacher and you write a, like, a, like a paper on it and it's like, who's going to read that? But people are going to watch a live tweet. So do you think it makes sense to do research in a way that's more accessible to the public like that? Do you think that makes it more worthwhile? Or do you think... But, but what are your thoughts on that? It's so complicated. Yeah. So I suspect at Harvard, at the Ivy schools and what's the big school in Britain, Oxford, who have trillion-dollar endowments, having the tenure-track professors writing highly esoteric research, that well, research will, is there to be read and move knowledge forward. So yes, let's, let's just, I don't think she was saying, but let's just take it off the table, that, of course, research shouldn't be something that is never read. Right. But the purpose of it is to advance ideas and enlighten knowledge and understanding of something. And it doesn't have to be general popularity. It can be the growth size of flea weeks and change over time. I don't know. I have something like that. There are esoteric things that may be important to research, and that's, I, I use the word, important to research. Mm-hmm. There is, on the other side, I would agree with the criticism that there is this desire, particularly by less well-endowed, and I mean that money, universities, to get attention to their work and their school and their like, so that more people and more money will come. And again, it's... It's a challenge for some professors in some departments. There is probably a perceived view of those who are the students, the PhD candidates, that they're more likely to get their work. And this is the other thing that's changed, saying the work itself published, if it's on a more current and exciting project. So that there are incentives, monetary incentives for everybody to do something popular and stuff. So it's fair to criticize the incentives of the systems that are out there. And by the way, I, I'm pretty comfortable with professors not being in charge of the administration. I don't know what her point of view is. I think, you know... I, view is that I think that administration puts pressure on faculty to produce that sort of popular research instead of producing research that is good. But teachers can push back on those topics and can be part of committees and systems inside those institutions, and they can change institutions. I think you're saying that there's just not enough of that happening. Well, no, it's happening a lot. 
Interesting. Well, I think uh, I think he's right that that's, but I don't know that it's new. A couple of things that are new from, I don't know what era she's thinking about, even when I was in school. You didn't have the internet. You didn't have quick and easy publishing. You didn't have Amazon. You couldn't get your work up and out there. And there wasn't a view that if I get this as a sexy thing and I get a lot of people on my Twitter account or my Facebook or, or whatever the academic systems are, I'll be respected. I can get my thoughts. Now, it could and should be. So it's changed everything. So it's much more complicated, a system and an infrastructure. I will tell you why. This was my reaction, so I'll mention it. I don't want to confuse you, but okay. But, but it reminds me of, in some ways, of the medical profession. How so? That why should we have private practice, which makes doctors have to become expert business people, when their work is, should be medicine? Right. And to say they should be involved in the teachers should be involved in the administration of schools, they're subject matter experts in departing knowledge and their role in primary role, they shouldn't not need to know how to run a department. They should be innovative in how they communicate. They should be the experts in their subject matter, which by itself, but the biggest complaints I've heard over years of teachers, by having to teach, I don't have enough time to really do my own study and research. But if the complaint is, and now they want me insist that I sit in the dean's office for, for something, well, screw her, if that's what the argument is. You're right. Yeah. I do have some professors who complain about the number of departmental meetings I have to go to. And, oh, we're hiring someone that needs lots of meetings for me and less time to spend with office hours or with you, meeting with you, doing my research, doing whatever, grading your paper. So I couldn't grade your essays. I had to be at a bajillion departmental meetings. There is an arrogance of a bit in what she's doing because study versus advocacy or ideas. I ran across this one instant of her. And even though I agree, think I agreed with the argument she was making in this, like a justice action, go sit in your kid's sex ed class and live tweet and criticize the system. What the hell? And so we get into this larger question, political question today of, of parent autonomy and role in, in what our kids are taught. It's like the idea of learning and inquiry and teaching is not itself a profession. And that, you know, what the theory, the goal of education in history, for example, so now politicians and legislatures decide what's to be taught in the name of doing it for parents. That's an advocacy piece. That's bullshit. How's that? Yeah. Interesting. We talked about advocacy. So her early research was about people who are intersex, like history of like intersex people in that community. So she said she did some advocacy work with the intersex community and that she's like, my advocacy is very different from my academic work and that she like definitely draws a distinction between the two. It was interesting, but. Well, you know something, it's like I'm being punished for being an extremist someplace and that's unfair. Isn't that what she's saying? Well, it sounds that. I don't know if that is, but that's what that, that sounds like. So she's like, I'm not being an extremist in my academic work, but I'm being an extremist somewhere else. It, so therefore, I'm being punished from my acad- in the academic realm. Do you think that's what she's saying? And that's sort of, uh, you know, 
Yeah, that may be a variation of what she's saying. And it's not the first time this happened. You know, if I'm in a company or in the federal government or anywhere, and I go out there in March, and they protest, and let's just say it's for white supremacy. Okay. And bring back slavery. I, you know, that's an argument. Maybe people believe that. But you go over to the work and you do really good work in your company. But your picture was on the front page or you live tweeted your support of that. And everybody around you, including the African-American employees, know what you've done and doing it. I have a hard time being uncomfortable with firing that person. You would have a hard time firing that person? Being, bad, being unhappy with that. You would... Uh... Would you I wait? Would allow them to be be fired. Uh, would? Yes, I would. I think I would because they've created it. In fact, by their chosen choice of visibility and action, that belief. How do you separate a person from what they say they believe, and how do you know they're not implementing that in their work? And it's complicated. I know it. And this is not, by the way, free. Just. Because the word free speech is thrown around so sloppily all the time. Oh, yeah. Free speech is, in the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, is a restriction on governmental action. Yes. On employer action. Depends on your contract. Now, a lot of universities are state entities. And yeah. creates a slightly different standard. It gets complicated. It does. So we're, we're talking about real-life stuff that gets complicated. And so yeah. is she. But I guess I... I found the one thing that she did that just turns me off. Yeah. The idea of going in. If she had constructive information about how to do sex ed and wanting to be taught to the people who did that program in that school district, I would applaud that. Yes. But to sit in the child's class and live tweet it is for her benefit. Nobody else's. Well, interestingly, do you think we would be talking about this or anyone would even know or care about this? If she had just gone to the people who create the curriculum, maybe she wanted to start a conversation. If that was the purpose of live tweeting Cinder Kids class, I would still object to it because I don't think that's what it takes. Okay. The live tweeting is for her personal aggrandizement, however you define that. And she wants to be an advocate and public advocate and on the public square. And people, a lot of people do. And look, there's a line to be crossed. I think being inviting her to discuss this stuff and her views is perfectly fine. Yes. And if she represents a significant intellectual line of thinking in her area, I would encourage her to be hired by a university. She was, apparently. I don't know why she left a tenured position. Oh, I think she left because her husband moved. Her husband became the dean, I think, at Michigan State. Which one's the one in East Lansing? Is it University of Michigan or Michigan? But whatever. I, mean, I think it's because her husband moved, and then so she moved with him. And gave up a tenure, you know, what love really means, giving up a tenure position to stay with your spouse. There you go. We could talk about that. You know, I'm reminded again of, I was on the board of the McLean Community Center here in our Northern Virginia, yeah. and we were looking at the budget or something, and the board was taking public testimony. And there were some people there who were yelling at us and who were had all sorts of inflammatory language. And 
By then, I already learned is I I wasn't going to engage them. I thanked them for their testimony. I, there was another board member who wanted to just get into it. I said, just let her talk. I think by engaging that kind of behavior, and you know, some of it is well meant and wanted them to the point of view. But I think people, I think she, I, I think the professor here monetizes her point of view. It's how she's going to make her living now. I love the bioethics exploration. That's why, so I went to, so that's why this grand rounds that I did, it was in the Bioethics and Humanities Institute associated with the medical school, which it sounds like yeah. doing herself. And so I, that part I love. And so there are different points of view about accompanied suicide and the right, in quotes, yeah. to do that. And it's interesting, the director of that, who was the one who invited me, Dr. Stephen Post, who's written a book called Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, as a chapter where he treats that topic, accompanied suicide, as academically, and there are two points of view, and he explains it. He didn't support it, and he doesn't support it, at least as I understand it. Yeah. But you can do that, and you can write a book about it, and you can treat it with respect. In other words, as a sacred process. The sacred... Right, 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 right. So maybe we go back, because we're doing this for a while now. Um, people don't listen this loud. <laughs> maybe... The idea of a sacredness of intellectual inquiry and discourse is that you do it in good faith and in an honest way, and you don't demean and you, you your own point of view doesn't necessarily dominate your inquiry because you're willing to listen and consider the other side. And when you present your point of view, you do it in some sort of grounded way, not for the more headlines I'm going to get now. Sounds like she criticizes people choosing their topics for popularity. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about how you handle that topic. Interesting, interesting. Very different thing. Yeah, it's a different thing. And in some ways, she's right on the edge in what she's doing of on the leading edge of the hot among the hottest topics that are out there. And she's going yeah. to get paid for her her speeches on it to present herself in this topic. I wonder if it wasn't so lucrative whether she changed topics. Well, anyway, she used to study, again, she used to study a very different topic. She, actually, I don't know if I said this on the podcast, but she, her original research was with hermaphrodites, and she said she wanted to study this phenomenon of, she wanted to study discourse in college campuses because it had come to her and because it had personally impacted her, and she wanted to understand what was happening to her. That's the reason she gave. So she's, now, so she's monetizing she creates a, herself as a controversial character, and now she's monetizing it. That's another perspective. Yeah. Well, I don't yeah. know, but it, it begins to sound like a leading-edge thinkers who have different points of view. I think it's fine. Having yeah. that different point of view, being that character, is great. So in the 60s, this same kind of discussion would happen. Your Aunt Marion, my late sister, passed away well, there was a, herself a activist and there, you know, after she graduated school and worked for something called the National Student Association, mm -hmm. trying to get the leaders of colleges all over the country who were considered liberal and crazy, so to speak, and they would go and speak about ideas of free speech and sexual freedom and things, and there were protests on campuses. But I don't think they did. they did it for their cause. And 
you know, keep saying that. My friend, who you met, Ken Goldberg, when I was in school, he was with the anti-war movement, and mm-hmm. they wanted to simply hand down pamphlets. Mm-hmm. And the other side would engage in violence. I was on the entry to our student union when they were Ken was and his friends were handing out anti-war pamphlets, and the other side came and flipped the tables up in the air and. You know, they, Ken and his friends ran away in fear. The college president stood up out there. It, it was in the national news that this is not the way we debate. So the issue isn't a lot that different. And I think it is a sacred process to do that, particularly around things that are unpopular. And campuses should be the place that these can be discussed. I agree. I do think that it is the good faith of it. And... Yeah. Triggered that in me. Now, look, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people are not, you know, don't allow the pro-Palestinian person come talk about the Palestinian point of view, I think is wrong. I think those points, those speakers, even when they may sound anti-Semitic, because you need to then provide and show that they're wrong. So there should be plenty of room. And if that's all she's saying, then I agree with that. But I think it needs to be, how do we take the PR thing out of it? How do we take the monetization of the speaker's interest? You know, being controversial for the sake of the money. Maybe that isn't even what's going on and I've gotten this. No, I think that's definitely a big aspect of it. I, I totally agree. I think that was the point you was trying to make, because we need to take this all the money out of it. We need to start doing knowledge, pursuing knowledge for the sake of pursuing knowledge and to make it a sacred mission. I wonder whether she's the ideal voice for that. <laughs> you don't think she is? Well, she's doing just what she complains about. If Yeah. And I, again, I'm maybe just reacting, overly reacting to this one instant where she goes and sits in her kid's class and then life tweets it. So you know, the world is getting so, so complicated. And there is a great challenge to the idea of what truth is. And the misuse of it, and we, that's another talent. But thank you for I a very thank you. All right, some closing remarks. One, you see, you said the university president at University of Texas El Paso got up and said, "This is not how we do things." And what kind of impact do you think that had on the discourse on campus after that? It's hard. It was a long time ago. Yeah, the fact that it was featured on national news and in. But reinforcing messages of the right way to do things. Yes. Of integrity have value. Yeah. And you thought it was a well-received message at the time? Yes. Now, the anti-war people may not have. Right. Now, and I worried about the safety of my friend. Yeah. You know, violence to pursue your point of view should always be wrong. Yes, I agree. And it is wrong. So let's get really current. The president of the United States taking a picture of himself with a bat wanting to hit the DA investigating him encourages violence. For our president. Former president. Yeah. Absolutely. That does encourage violence, yes. So, so, so if something is sacred, it is nonviolent, nonviolent language, and behavior would would follow. I don't know that she did that, does that, but I would agree with that. Message. All right. Agree with the message, but you don't think she's, she's not walking the walk. Well, that one instant, and that's all. In that one instant, yes. And, and if that is 
typical of what she does. And the mere fact one would do just that, you think about it, have a parent live tweeting it. I didn't even know how the school system let her in, for God's sakes, but that was another mistake. But it, yeah. I love this part. I think I owe you a prompt, though, for our next one. Seeing that uh, next time. Confusing grandpa but gets confused and confused. But as usual, we'd love to hear from people. Grandpa thinks deep at gmail.com is the email to send it to. Maybe we'll share it because we have her email. We'll share a link to this to the speaker and see if she wants to come on with us. Oh, boy, that would be something. <laughs> Give it a try. See what happens. Oh, boy. <laughs> All right, well, thank okay. you. All right, thank you, everybody. See you next time.